You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, amen. Good morning, church. Let me invite you to turn with me in our text for this morning, which is in the Old Testament. Again, it's one of those short books of the Bible, Obadiah, verses 10 through 14. Obadiah, verses 10 through 14. If you're visiting with us this morning, perhaps for the first time, I want to welcome you. We are getting back to normal. We're very excited about it. Slowly, safely, things are coming back together. And we even enjoyed a really fantastic Easter Sunday morning last week celebrating the resurrection of our King. And we were so grateful to be able to do that, uh, at least most of us, in person. Some are still uh, following along online, and we're grateful for that option during these uh, hopefully last days of uh, the distance. And some of these precautions, we're praying hard and working hard to see them come to an end so we can get back to 100% full speed. But we are grateful for the way things are going so far. We come to this text this morning in Obadiah 10 through 14, coming off of a really great Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday morning when we celebrated again the resurrection and uh, just felt just all of the joy and, uh, and even the, the lightheartedness that the resurrection brings to our lives because we, we're reminded of just how much our God loves us. And now, though, we are coming back into a sermon series we've been in for a little while now called Short and Stout, as we're working through, verse by verse, the five shortest books of the Bible. And so we come back this week, as I told you last week, we took a break so that we could look at a a more uh, Easter-focused text. Uh, We come to a text here that is very, very different than what we thought about last Sunday. Everything is really shifting for us. We're we're moving from from resurrection and life and pastels and a a lot of happiness and joy to judgment. But what I'm excited about today is that as always in the Word of God, we are able to see how everything that God does in His rescuing through his resurrection, the resurrection of his son, and through his judgment, all of it is working together as parts of one overarching purpose and plan that puts his glory on display and magnifies our good, our joy, our happiness in him. And so that is my prayer this morning, that while we're making this sharp turn to to see a text about judgment, we will be able to see just how just how joyful we can be in the midst of this text because it is grounded in his love for us. Let me catch you up from a couple of weeks ago as we were in the verses just before this in Obadiah. And we have been (coughs) reading um, essentially a book written to Edom. And Edom was a a group of people that had uh, descended from Esau. You remember Esau and Jacob. And that East Edom was known for trusting in themselves. Uh, They trusted in their wealth. They trusted in their allies. And as a result, this led to other ways that they provoked God, namely by mistreating his people, Judah, this group of people that had descended from Jacob. And this book functions as a a text to Edom 
as a warning while also being a comfort to Judah. It's a comfort to us, and that's what I hope that we're gaining from this somewhat challenging little book of the Bible, a lot of comfort as God's people. Today we see, even as we read about God's loving judgment, that because he loves us, he watches over us and he cares for us. And we see his love not only in the the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his, his rescue mission to save us, but we also see his love for us, even in his seriousness about judgment. I want you to see in verse 10 as we catch some of the context of this passage and then and show you three ways that God was uh, judging or reasons that God was judging Edom is that mainly the, the sin of Edom that we're seeing here is the, the mistreatment of Judah. And this was a big deal because, because Judah wasn't just anyone to Edom. They were somewhat kinsmen. They, they had a common important ancestor in Abraham. We think about this and we think about, about how God's people are so, uh, so much a treasure to him, and yet it doesn't seem to, to do anything to stop those who would persecute God's people. This is, this is a message, this is a book that, that would be so, uh, so powerful today for the world if the world had ears to hear, especially in those harder places of the world where Christians are greatly, greatly mistreated. Here in this text, we see just how serious, just how serious God is about that mistreatment. Look at verse 10 and just catch just this verse in your, in your heart and mind and notice the seriousness that God takes as we look at this judgment that he's declaring upon Edom, upon Esau for this mistreatment. He says, because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. Those are such serious words about the mistreatment of God's chosen people here referred to as as Jacob or Judah, the people of God. They're so serious, and you hear it in those words, you will be covered with shame. That God would cover them with shame because of what they had done, and that you will be cut off forever. I often say when we are together on Sunday mornings that there are places in Scripture that we just kind of gloss over sometimes. We, we see words that are kind of familiar to us, and we don't really linger over them. We, we think we kind, of, uh, we kind of already know them, but then we miss out. We miss out on the intensity of the text. And, and if you want to understand the Bible, and if you want to understand in particular our text this morning, you have to begin here, and you have to feel the intensity of God's heart for his people. Remember, his judgment is not arbitrary. His judgment is grounded. It's driven. It's fueled. It's fed by love. We see that here as we think about three reasons that God was bringing judgment, declaring judgment on Edom. Here's the first. They stood aloof when Judah was being mistreated, when they were being persecuted, when they were being attacked. We see here that God cares. He cares when someone stands aloof during the mistreatment of another, in particular, his chosen people. Babylon, a great nation, had raided Judah. They were carrying off their wealth. 
They were even casting lots for Jerusalem. They were, they were sort of gambling for, for control of Jerusalem. Incredible arrogance and incredible assault, incredible mistreatment. And God notices that Edom was standing aloof when this was happening. What does that mean? It's a way of saying that you're, you're standing by watching passively. You're not taking up. You're not taking up for God's people. You're, you're not supporting them. You're not coming to their rescue. And even in that, though it was passive, this is considered by God as serious, serious opposition to him. In fact, he says here in verse 11 that they are just like the active persecutors because they stood by aloof as though it was no big thing, watching it happen, not coming to rescue. We see it in verse 11. He says they'll be cut off forever. They'll be, they'll be covered with shame on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers this was in 586 BC. Remember, again, Babylon the Great carrying off Jacob's wealth. And foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. The same kind of view that God has is, is declared other places in the Bible. When he takes seriously the alignment of every person with him or against him, in fact, we even read here in Matthew 12, 30, listen to these words. These will probably be very familiar to you. They're kind of famous words. He says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. This is the kind of thing that was going on here in the book of Obadiah in that, that Edom was against God, against his people because they were not with them. What God is saying is that there's no middle ground. There's no neutral position with him. You cannot be for him or against him or in the middle. It's one or the other. And everyone has to choose where they will be. Will you be for him? Will you be against him? Will you be for his people and his purposes in the world? Or will you be against them? Edom, Esau, made their choice. And God watched them. He watched them while this, this horrible injustice was being done, horrible mistreatment of his people. He watched them stand in the middle, stand aloof. And in his eyes, it made them just like the active persecutors. Some today we call this in some legal terms. It doesn't make it into a lot of our legal books. Uh, every now and then in certain places it does, but it's, a, it's kind of hit or miss. And it's the idea of duty to rescue. Do you have a responsibility when you see someone else being mistreated to step in and take care? To step in and perhaps even cause conflict out of love for your neighbor? Do you have a duty to rescue? One of those places where this came up uh, most recently, I think, was in 2016 in Germany. An 83-year-old man was in a bank, and he fell ill and fell out right there in the bank, and a number of the people around failed to offer aid. In fact, as they were going about their business, some of them just stepped right over him. 
And when the government was sorting all of that out, the police were sorting out what had happened. They went back and looked at the security camera footage and they identified all of the people, all the people who just stood aloof. They fined them with enormous fines because they did not fulfill their duty. They did not fulfill their duty to rescue. The only person who was not fined was the one person who picked up a phone and called for emergency services to come and help, help the old man. You see, there's something inside of us. There's something I think that is somewhat hardwired inside of us to know that that is wrong. We saw that just recently, didn't you? You saw it in the news in that horrible scene outside, I think it was a, a hotel in, in Manhattan when this Asian-American woman was walking down the street and someone came up and just, just horribly abused her, kicked her onto the ground. And we see on that security footage, Ben stood there and didn't do anything. In fact, one of them closed the door. And that's what Edom is doing. They're standing aloof. This is serious business. But let me tell you how serious it is. This is not serious in a Manhattan way. This is not serious in a Germany way. This is serious in a kingdom of God way. And it is serious because the seriousness is heightened by something in particular that's going on in this text. And it is the fact that those who are being raided are God's people, God's chosen people. We know from the word of God that God loves the whole world. It's a beautiful thing to see Jesus Christ coming into the world and showing off his glory, showing off his grace, even giving common grace to the world, which is then manifested in so many beautiful ways. And yet the Bible also says something very important. It's very important if you're going to understand why is God so serious about someone standing passively while his people are being mistreated. And it is because he loves his people in an infinitely different, infinitely better way. His love for his people dwarfs his love for the world. His love for his people is not just a common kind of love. It is a special love. It is a love that he bestowed on his people by grace alone. It is that he says in this word that he set his love on his people. He has taken them from the, the very darkest places of the world, from the, from the depths of despair, from the pit of sin, and he's rescued them by the resurrection of his son and brought them to himself. They have become his treasure. He gives himself to them. He orchestrates his purposes in the world for them. He has plans to perfectly preserve them and care for them and see them through. They will be the covenant keepers in his final kingdom who will worship him forever. They are the people who will be fully satisfied by his glory, by his goodness, when all the world rejects him. They are his chosen people. It's that fact. It's that fact that makes this passive treatment so very serious. It is grounded in his love. His judgment of Edom for standing aloof while this was going on is grounded in his incredible love. That's why when you read a text like this, you hear coming through the warning to Edom 
or the warning to the world if they had ears to hear of how they should respond to God's people, how they should interact with them, how they should care for them, how they should come into them. But you also should be hearing this, an incredible word of comfort to you. God will not put up with the persecution of his people for long. He will make sure that every last instance is completely and finally judged. He will bring ultimate justice on the world because he loves, he loves his people. You heard it earlier in the public reading text this morning, which is Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 10. It's helpful to us if I read that again very slowly. Listen carefully to it. Listen to the, the incredible, steadfast, infinite, jealous, incessant, intense love of God for his people. It says in verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, because the Lord loved you, because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Incredible, incredible love. Now, there are parents here who have set their love on their children. There are some spouses here who have set their love on their spouses. There are friends here who have set their love on their friends. But friends, there is no love. There is no love like this. None of us have ever loved another person the way God loves his people never with the intensity, never with the, the blue, hot flame of real love. This is a love that only God knows because it is divine. And it is that blue, hot flame of love that fuels his fury when the world comes against his people. He says in verse 10, that same passage in Deuteronomy 7, after saying that his love is held to a thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces. To destroy them, he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. This is why you see God so jealous so serious about his people in the world. This is why he's so serious about Edom, this group of people who stood aloof while Babylon came in and raided Jerusalem, raided his people, mistreated them. So what should we do? 
What should we do first with this text? This is the first use or application. We want to take the word of God and we want to apply it to our lives. Here's the first. I hope that you will take from even just this one verse, Obadiah 11, a real sense of God's overwhelming love for you. Are you in Christ? Have you come by by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the teachings of the word of God alone and what he's declared to you, to his glory, if you come into his covenant family, take away his overwhelming love for you. But also, also as it is with every text of scripture, even those that comfort us, There is an occasion for us to examine ourselves even and to think carefully about how we treat his children, how we treat our siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ, in our church, in other places. How do we treat them? Because we know from texts like this that God is very serious. He's very serious about his children. We want to be serious about his children too. That's why in our church, we're, we're trying, though imperfectly, to be brothers and sisters. No matter where we come from, no matter what languages we know, no matter what interests we have, we're rallying together around Christ who loves us. He's our center. He's our satisfier. He's the one that makes our, our world, our lives, our church make sense. And therefore, in ABF and YBF and children's ministry and community group and Sunday morning and prayer gathering that last Sunday night of every month, any other times that we meet together one-on-one, we're trying very hard, though imperfectly, to take care of each other, to be real brothers and sisters who belong to a God who takes care of us. And he even takes care of us in the midst of judgment. He's taking us seriously. That ought to be a comfort to you. That is a comfort to me. I need that reminder. Would you remind me of that from time to time? Would you remind me of that from time to time? And I'll remind you, and you remind you, God is taking care of us. He is serious about us. Even when others seem to stand aloof, God does not. But second, there's something else that they did which drew God's ire and his judgment. And it was this. Not only did they stand aloof when the looting was happening, they gloated over the misfortune of God's people, Judah. Listen to verse 12. He warns them. He tells them, do not do what you're doing. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. You hear this kind of collision between uh, Jacob and Esau, Judah and Edom, which we understand for there to be conflict there. And we know what that's like, don't we? We know what that's like even in a church or even among close friends, that when conflict happens, or when two people and their purposes start to rub against each other, 
our hearts quickly turn, don't they? They turn sour. And, and then when we see someone that we have set ourselves up against, even just for a moment, we see them suffer, something evil in our hearts rises up. And it says, yeah, you're getting what you deserve. Well, that was happening in a very intense way in this text. And this was one of the reasons that God brought shame on Edom. It was for gloating. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to gloat? How do you do that? Where does it happen? Do you gloat with your hands? Do you gloat with your feet or your mouth or with your ears? You really don't. You gloat with your heart. This is where we're seeing an incredible shift in, in God's perspective on people in the world and even his perspective on us. And that is that God does not just look down and see what they're doing with their bodies, that they're standing aloof, but he looks down and he can see even what is going on in their hearts. They're not standing aloof because they don't know what to do. They're not standing aloof because they're afraid. They're standing aloof because they're gloating. Hear these words that are used. The key words of verse 12 are heart-oriented words. They're all things that happen in the heart. Here they are. There's three of them. Gloat, rejoice, boast. Those are the three things that are happening in the hearts of of the Edomites as they're watching this happen. Their hearts are turned against the people of God. Their hearts are turned against God. And this is a frightening reality. God sees it. Do you remember what uh, it says in 1 Samuel 16? This is the, that uh, kind of famous passage about the calling of David. This is one of those passages where we get a, a little bit of helpful information about the heart and why it's so important and that God looks at it. Do you remember this? It says in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Can you imagine what it would be like if you could look into the hearts of the people sitting with you right now? I've often thought about that. In fact, as I was a young Christian uh, growing in the faith, a striking picture was given to me, and it was some kind of like a you know, young Christian kind of meeting or camp or something, and the, the speaker was up front, and he proposed this idea. He said, I want you to imagine what would happen if we could single you out and have you stand, and then we could project from your heart and mind onto that screen everything that you have thought, everything that you have said in your heart, everything that you have wanted, everything or people you have hated, and we could display them all on the screen for everyone to see what would happen. You would leave town. You couldn't stay. At least you would feel like you couldn't stay. Can you imagine? Sometimes I'm, well, I'm usually grateful for that. How often we wish we could know what someone else is thinking about us, you don't want to know. For us as, as creatures, as people, it makes us so hard. It makes us so hard for us to show grace. It's hard enough. 
It is a gift that you cannot know the heart of another person. You cannot know their secret thoughts. It is a gift. But God can. In fact, God not only sees, but he weighs the heart. He looks into the heart to know what's really in a person, what a person is really like. Proverbs 27, 19 says, as water, like in a, maybe a stream outside or leaning over the pool when it's real clear and calm and no one's in it, as water reflects the face, heart reflects the man. Or in this passage in Psalm 44, God knows the secrets of the heart. Just as God sees the hearts of his people who outwardly appear weak, he also sees the sinful hearts of all men. Why does this matter? Why does it matter here? It matters here because it magnifies again just how serious God's love for his people is. He's not only concerned with the, the behaviors of people in the world toward his people or toward himself. He takes full account all the time of what is in their hearts. Friends, this ought to comfort us. It does frighten us, doesn't it? It does frighten It ought to frighten you. It ought to frighten you that God knows what's in your heart. He knows what you think. He knows what you say. He knows what you want. But we have grace. We look to that Easter Sunday morning and we see Christ risen from the dead, having been crucified for us, giving us in this great exchange his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He showers us with grace and love. He shows us again and again how he set his love on us, not because of anything in us, but also in a world like ours that is in desperate need every moment of real justice. Only a fraction of what goes wrong in this world happens on the outside. Most of it happens on the inside. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if God took his restraining grace off those guardrails of the human heart, he took them down like the bumpers on the, on the, at the bowling alley, just folded them down and let it go wherever it would go. The whole world would spin out of control. God offers real justice in this world because he knows the hearts of men. And one day, on a day of judgment, one day, he will judge every thought. He will judge every word. And he will make real justice then. Even when it appears that evil will prevail, even when it seems as though we have a little glimpse into, into the hearts of other people and we are concerned that, 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 that God is not watching, oh, he's watching. He knows. This ought to magnify. This ought to magnify. As we do that healthy self-examination in this text, we see, we see the way God can look into their hearts. He sees their gloating. He sees their rejoicing. He sees their boasting. It should magnify for you and me our incredible need for grace. You know what I mean because you know some of what's in your heart. I know some of what's in my heart. 
And when you look into the mirror of the word of God and you take more than your behavior, you take your heart and you put it before that mirror, you know how desperately you need grace. But with that, it ought to magnify our appreciation for grace because grace is exactly what we have been given. And it's ongoing, abounding grace that he continues to lavish upon us as his people because he loves us. Second use of our text this morning is simply this. If you want to be a faithful Christian, if you want to be a faithful friend, if you want to be a faithful worshiper of God, you must, you must care about your inner thoughts. You must care about the affections of your heart. You cannot only care about your behavior or the way things look on the outside. That would be fine if we lived in a godless world where there were only other creatures who couldn't see beneath our skin. But we don't. We live before the face of God, Coram Deo. His eye is always watching. And therefore, as his people who have been showered with grace, we ought to care very much, very much about our thoughts and our affections. Can you imagine standing before the judge of the universe one day with all of your thoughts, all of your affections, all of your idols, all of your troubles and worries, all cast upon one infinite screen? I am thankful for grace. And that grace ought to do just that, to motivate us to care very much about what's going on in our hearts, that our hearts remain Godward, that our hearts are attuned to him, that our hearts are seeking to bestow grace upon other people, that we are living from the heart for his glory and for the good of our world. But that is not all that Edom did. If you can believe it, it's getting worse. They didn't only stand aloof. They didn't only gloat over the misfortune of Judah, but they joined Babylon, it seems. They took advantage of this time of distress. And that's why God warned Edom not to take advantage. Notice his very serious protection about what Edom was doing, his very serious and very specific instructions. He says in verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people. Do not enter the gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you. Do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. These fugitives are, are those who would be trying to escape Babylon. They've been taken captive and somehow they got away. And, and here would be Edom around the outskirts of town, cutting them down or perhaps even imprisoning the survivors in the day of their distress. This offense against God's people is incredible. It just gets worse and worse and worse. They took advantage of this moment of weakness. They gave action to their gloating, to their rejoicing, to their boasting. They did not come to their help. And this welcomed the judgment of God. Serious, serious transgression of God's law, of even God's heart. 
But again, when we read a text like this, it's important that we examine ourselves. That's what we're, we're regularly trying to do. And even as you see this, we, we want to take away even, even warnings for ourselves. We want to check ourselves because we know that the hearts of Edom are similar to the hearts of us. We have remaining sin in our hearts. We have the abilities we've seen here to stand back when others are in trouble or in need. We've seen the way that our own hearts could gloat over the misfortune of someone else, perhaps someone that's, that's not going our way. Then we also are not immune from mistreating others in the time of their distress. Sometimes that may be believers, other believers. It's crazy to think that, isn't it? It's crazy to think that Christians who have been so, so bathed in the grace of God would mistreat or, or abandon other believers in their hour of need. Sometimes it's toward unbelievers in the world. Sometimes our disposition toward unbelievers in the world, though we once were one of them, though we once were under the wrath of God, though we once were in incredible need of grace and remain so, that when misfortune befalls them, we gloat. We may even take advantage. But that's not the way of people who have been changed by grace, is it? People who have been changed by grace help. People who have been changed by grace offer the favor of their hearts. People who have been bathed in grace do not eat their wounded. When I was a kid, I wish we still had this game. It would be fun to play. I'm sure there's one somewhere at a thrift shop called Hungry, Hungry Hippos. Did you play this? It was a game where there was like four or five hippo heads on arms that you would push down. When you push it down, the mouth would open, it would reach out, and it would scoop back marbles that would be like scattered in the, in the middle of the, of the game. And you would try to eat as many marbles as you could. I thought that was so amazing. We would play this game, Hungry, Hungry Hippos. And then I had no idea until later in school just how real that was. You look at a hippo, you think, what could be so bad? You could probably go up and pet it. You could probably ride it maybe. It's just, it's just a fun little animal in a game. You know what? In the real world, it's not. Real hippos are not playing a game. In fact, they are incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And they've even been recorded as doing something astounding, even in the animal world eating their own. What's even more astounding is they're herbivores. But yet something's gone wrong and they eat their own. Sometimes Christians do that. Sometimes believers do that. It's really crazy. It's not our nature, not our new nature. It's not what we have been shown. It's certainly not what God has done for us. We see what God has done for those who come against him. But for those who are with him, for those who are with him, he feeds them. He cares for them. He responds to them with grace. That's the calling for us. That's even the calling, I think, of this text for us. Is to think in this day when grace is so desperately needed that we would think about how we can elevate grace. How we can show grace even more consistently to believers and even to unbelievers in the world to make grace the song that we sing. Here's two simple ways 
or, or ideas about grace that we, can, that we can trace out, walk out in life, you have to understand what grace is. Here's what grace is. Number one, grace is unmerited favor that comes from a loving heart. A heart that has been transformed by the love of God is able to show grace to people who do not deserve it. In fact, that's what God has done for us in the gospel. That's why we make the gospel paramount. Because God didn't come to us and give us a a list of commands to follow to open the door into his favor. No, he gave it to us by grace. Therefore, we ought to be people of grace. I wonder if you would think this week about how you could show the unmerited favor of grace to another person just this week. That you would put on some glasses, your grace glasses, and look for opportunities that you could do just that. Who's it going to be? Who needs grace? Who needs favor from your loving heart that's been transformed by the gospel? But second, grace does not just favor you. Grace helps you. Grace rescues you. Grace acts. Just as we've seen in the gospel, that grace acted when Christ came into our world to redeem us, which we celebrated last Sunday. But grace also works as it comes and judges on our behalf, behalf of God's people. But grace helps. Grace has caring hands. Grace reaches out. Grace moves towards other people. It doesn't merely feel favor in the heart. It helps with the hands. Would you do that this week? Would you think about who by grace you could help? A real offer of grace. A real moving towards someone else. Perhaps it's someone. Perhaps it's someone that really does not deserve it. And yet you know that you did not deserve it. And you're going to show the same grace God has shown you. I want to bring this time in this text to a close just by, just by reviewing quickly how we can apply this to our lives. This is one of those texts, it's, it's, it's sometimes confusing. It's hard for us to think about, well, what am I going to do with that in my life? So it's good for us to end with a reminder of how we apply it to our lives. Here it is, number one, if you missed this earlier. I want you to keep a sense this week and in the coming days of God's overwhelming love and jealousy for us. Don't let anything in the world, don't let anyone around you fool you into thinking that God must not really love us. Because we see from this text and the rest of his word and all that he's done in the world, that is not true. Second, give attention to your inner thoughts and affections, not just your actions. Think about what's going on in your heart in the moment of conflict with someone else. What's going in your heart in the moment of fear and worry and anxiety. What's going in your heart, going on in your heart, what you're, you're longing for, what your <clears throat> affections are, are built on in the moment of anger, not just your actions. Because as we do that and as God continues to work in our hearts, we can do the third thing, and that is to extend grace to the distressed, to the undeserving, to those who, like us, need it most.
believer and unbeliever. This is the calling of a text like this. It's a calling to be like Christ, who loves us and has shown us grace and mercy, who has spared us from this kind of judgment so that we would be ambassadors, ambassadors of grace. But of course, that begins by coming to Christ. And that may be your need today. If you're here with us today or you're on the live stream, this may be what you need. You need to come to Christ. Because without him, your heart is trapped. It's trapped by sin. It's trapped in, in aloofness. It's, it's trapped in gloating. It's trapped in sin. But Jesus is gracious. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is serious about his love. And in the gospel, he sets his love on us. So by faith, I encourage you to come to Christ, repent of your sin, throw yourself at his mercy. You will not regret, you will not regret throwing yourself upon him. We want to know about that if it's a decision that you, you make today or in the coming days so that we can help you and encourage you. Please let us know another, another believer nearby so we can walk with you. And as we go today, let's think carefully. Let's think carefully about grace. Let's think carefully about God's intense love for us, how it changes us and motivates us as we pray and ask God's help. Oh, Father in heaven, we are in desperate need of your grace. We are in desperate need of your help. We look in this text and so many others and we see your judgment upon people who have, who have set themselves up against you, set themselves up against your people, and we are looking in a mirror we have only to grace that we can credit the fact that we are not the recipients of your judgment, that we have, have your love, that we have your mercy, not because of anything in us, not because of something we have done, but simply because you have loved us. We pray that you would help us to be ambassadors of your grace as a church. Help us to be ambassadors of grace to the world, that the world would know just how serious is your love. It is like no other. And we pray that that love, that grace would transform our world, our neighborhoods, our homes, our schools, our workplaces. Help us to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that main thing is the gospel of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name as we stand to prepare our hearts to sing again.